right, as the children go back, we're going to be preaching today in the book of Romans again. So if you would, be turning to chapter 6, and uh, just turn there, and you can kind of hold your place there. We're going to be there mostly uh, this morning. Uh, you know, God used Paul to pen his words to us. And Paul, like everyone, you know, God created him very uniquely. And he uses his uniqueness to communicate to us in his word. You know, it's good to get to know Paul and his way of communicating God's truth. Paul wrote approximately half of the books of the New Testament. So getting to know Paul and to identify the consistency of his writings as he was led by the Spirit of God, and, and as we are led by the Spirit of God, it will enlarge our understanding of God's Word. So last week we looked at the latter half of chapter 5. We were taught about uh, the two Adams of the Word of God, known as the first Adam and the last Adam. Interesting wording that God used. Um, the first Adam was the first created man on the earth, and the last Adam is Jesus Christ. Now, I found some interesting things that I kind of stopped off. I won't spend a lot of time here, but it's interesting about the name Adam. When I looked it up, you know, you kind of would expect and, uh, that, you know, right off the bat that God would just call us, give him his name Adam. Uh, but he just refers to Adam. And, uh, but later on in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, it says, This is the book of the generations of Adam in the day that God created man, and the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called, let me read this, male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. Now, Adam gave Eve some names, and Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Now, sometimes I call my wife woman. <laughs> some like that, some don't. I don't know. It was good for Adam. And Adam called his wife's name in Genesis 3.20 Eve because she was the mother of all living. And then in Luke chapter 3, verse 38, there's a reference of Adam's name, which was of the son of Enos, and which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. So it's just interesting there that, that man, and when you look at what Adam means, it's a very just basic term and just, there's not a whole lot to it. It's just mankind. Verse 12 of Romans chapter 5 depicts the first Adam in the fleshly nature, having sinned and thus bringing sin into the world. Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. The last Adam. Jesus Christ is depicted as the one and only by whom, only by whom the whole world can receive 
the forgiveness of sins. In verse 15 it said, but, as, but not as the off offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift of grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. Now there's a continuing list of opposing forces listed between the first Adam and the last Adam, Christ. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You can hold your place in Romans 6. But turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses, and we're going to read verses 42 through 58. And I want you to see uh, the difference, differences between these two and the opposing forces between these two. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. Okay, if you want to, you can kind of picture two lists here. You, you, you have the first Adam and the, and the last Adam. You have Adam, you have Christ. One is sown in corruption, but it's raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, raised in in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit, that was not first, which is spiritual, but that which is natural. That's true to all of us. We were born natural. And afterward, that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Notice the differences, the contrasting here. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Speaking of those who are saved. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. There's nothing in man, in his flesh, his blood, to inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit Incorruption. These are very important verses. You're going to this contrasting and understanding these things. Verse 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. In other words, there's going to be a time where some aren't going to die because they're going to be raptured. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. It says must. I like that word, because it's going to happen. You can't stop it. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, 
and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, here's the opposing point, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast. I like this. He brings this up, and, and then Paul just seems to say, okay, now here's the application. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not <clears throat> in vain in the Lord. You know, in Adam, through sin, death reigned in body, soul, and spirit. The human spirit from birth, from our birth, is disconnected from the Spirit of God with no means of reconnection of, of ourselves. The human soul is destined to corruption with no means of restoration. Just all you got to do is look at mankind. You just see what happens. It just it, it's nature. It corrupts itself. The human body decaying unto death with no means of resurrection. Through the first Adam, there is absolutely no hope. He is totally lost, totally unable to save himself. It is what we call the big word, the depravity of man, the total depravity of man. It is the sin nature. It is natural like gravity. It pulls everything down, down to an eternal death and punishment. Jesus Christ, however, the last Adam, is said to be a quickening spirit. Everything he represents is supernatural. It defies gravity and calls us into heaven. In Christ, the spirit of man is born again, which means connected again with God's spirit. The human soul is sanctified to a restoration of life and purpose and meaning. The human body is made immortal and incorruptible by the way of a resurrection. Paul shows us the opposing forces between the atoms. He shows the extreme uncontrollable degradation that started with only one sin. He showed the saving power of Jesus Christ by one man, by Him, the only way of salvation. He shows how awful sin is, but He concludes that however great the sin is, the grace of God, His unmerited favor, His unconditional love exceeds the greatest of sin. Jesus came not to even up the score, to tie it up. He came and conquered sin. Whatever sin score is in your life, God has more grace to save you from it. It's not up to you to win against sin. You are unable in your flesh, in your body. You are totally incapable of winning against sin. But Christ was able and he has won. And it's up to us to believe it and choose Christ as our new Lord and Savior. Now we sing a song. This song came to my mind as I was... Uh, dwelling on these, these thoughts. 
a song about grace. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there was the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Sin and despair like the sea waves cold threaten the soul with infinite loss. Infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace freely bestowed on all who believe, all who are longing to see His face. Will you this moment His grace receive? Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Grace always exceeds the sin of man. There is no sin so great or so many that can't be cured by the grace of God. It's an amazing thing. Now Paul starts out in chapter 6 of Romans with a logical, what I will term as a rhetorical question. In Romans 6.1 it says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, if God's grace always exceeds sin, then the way to get more grace is to sin more. There is a form of logic in that, and you've got to watch that, and especially with people, uh, they, they can get you twisted pretty easy because you have this little bit of logic and you just can fall right into that. But, it's, but this is a gross misuse of logic. It's like saying this. It's like saying making up with your spouse after a fight feels so good. And those of you who have experienced that, it is so good to make up with your wife or your husband. But it feels so good that we should seek fights in our marriage so that we can experience the joy of forgiveness more. <laughs> Paul gives us the long and short to the question. The short answer, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Or we might say, in our words, surely not. Of course not. You are kidding me. That's a stupid question. Or heavens to Betsy, no. And I'm not sure where that phrase came from. Heavens to Betsy. Uh, you think the answer to shall we continue in sin that grace may abound would require no more than the short answer from Paul, God forbid. <laughs> and just, Yet he spends the rest of the chapter giving the long answer to the question. Why would he do that? Well, after examining the details of his long answer, I've come to the conclusion we must have a hard time understanding the difference between up and down. I will therefore entitle the message, Which Way is Up? Let's pray. Father, as we look at this portion of Scripture in Romans chapter 6, there's great teaching here and an understanding that we must get a hold of. We do have a problem with up and down. We kind of want to mix them together, but they don't mix. Father, may we see clearly what you are saying through the writing of Paul 
in chapter 6. May we grab a hold of it, may we understand it, and may we be directed correctly in our Christian lives because of it. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's a few things we need to understand about up and down from a spiritual sense. The two never meet. They're opposite in their ways oppose each other. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way which seemeth right unto a man. <laughs> the way down. Now, if you could picture, you might picture an elevator. You know, there's a down and there's an up. Okay? But the end thereof are the ways of death. He, interesting, just two chapters later, the exact same phrase is repeated. There's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Twice he has to tell us that. Down is a natural direction. If you don't want, if you want to go down, don't do anything and you will go down. It's interesting when they find ancient cities, where do they find them? They just, they go down. That's a natural. It has said, been said the quickest way to hell is to not do anything. Up is not a natural force. If you want to go up, you need a supernatural force to make it happen. The longer you go in one direction, if you ever did this, the farther you get away from where the other direction can take you. Ever been going somewhere and took the wrong turn and headed north instead of south? That's an aggravation. It's because your mistake is actually doubled. The time it took you before you realized you were going in the wrong direction, and then the time to get back to the spot where you made the wrong turn. Man, that's frustrating, especially if you're a goal kind of setting person. You know, I'm trying to do this and get here and get there. And you get uptight about those things. Man, you're not happy when that happens. But therefore, we can say this. It is never too soon to turn in the direction of God when he makes you aware that you are lost or you're headed in the wrong direction. Never too soon. Another interesting thing about up and down is that it only takes a split second to get headed in the opposite direction. Salvation is a moment of time. I don't even know how to define it. It's just you we're going this way, and then you're going that way. A time when you were headed in a wrong direction, in a downward direction, then upon calling of the Lord for salvation, your life began headed in a totally new direction, in the opposite direction you were headed. Therefore, not only is it never too early to turn to the right direction, but it's never too late. It's never too late to turn to the right direction. It can happen in a moment. Here's one last thing I want you to understand about going up. Yes, birds and planes go up against nature. 
but for how high and for how long? What happens when the bird runs out of energy or the plane runs out of fuel? Do they go up or do they go down? What happens when the hunter directly hits the bird or there's a malfunction in an aircraft? Do they go up or do they down? More importantly, what happens to a man who holds to his good works, his religion, as a means of spiritual acceptance to God? He may impress a bunch of people flying high in his good works in life, and we know a lot of them. But by what power of his own will he be able to resurrect himself to God? He will have absolutely none. There's only one who will be able to resurrect a dead man into eternal life in heaven. And as guaranteed as an unsaved man will go down to the pit, the saved man will go up to heaven. David said in Psalm 30, verse 3, O Lord, Thou hast brought up my soul from the grave. Thou hast kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. So let's get back to the text. Paul begins the long answer to the question. And he answers with the question. He says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Then here comes the question. Another rhetorical question. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? When we get saved, the truth is made known to us that the life we were living before was taking us down, down to the pit of hell. It was a way that seemed right at the time, but after salvation we know it was the way of death, and we died to it. To turn to the living God. Folks, you got to be lost before you can get saved. Jesus said, you know... If somebody doesn't think they're sick, they don't need a doctor. So obviously, when you get saved, you realized the wrong direction you were going. And Paul's saying, how shall we that are dead to sin understand that live any longer therein? For that which we know has no life in it, why would we go back there and try to find life in it? We already know. It's dead. It's, it's going down. Paul then likens the image of salvation to the image of Christ, of a, attaching ourselves to Christ, which is also the image of ceremonial baptism. Romans 6.3, Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into His death. It's not talking about water baptism here, but it's talking about uh, salvation, being immersed, being attached to Christ. We, we give Him our life. Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. When I baptize somebody, I first ask that they have trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And then I say this, upon their answer of yes, 
upon your profession of faith in obedience to our Lord's command. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and then I immerse the person under the water and raise them up. I say these words, which represents Romans 6, 3 through 4. Buried with him in baptism. Sins forgiven. Not because of us, because of him. Raised to walk in the newness of life. I heard a pastor one time, he's an older pastor, and he baptized somebody, and he looked that person in the face, and he challenged them. They're going to walk with the Lord the rest of their life, that the church is going to be their life. It was good. Not bad thing to say. I told Joanna and Malachi what they've done. You know, sometimes you have to simplify some things little more I said what you've done is you've said this word of God you are going to follow this is your life it's as simple as that and to know it to understand it to walk after second Corinthians five seventeen. therefore if any man be in Christ he is a new creature old things are passed away behold all things are become new there's a passing away, a death of our old life. It's there. And Paul's going to explain some of this. It didn't relieve us from our ability to sin. We still have that flesh, and he'll deal with that later. But there's no life in it anymore. An old life that is a Christian, knowing the truth, knows that there's no longer any life in the old life that is dead. Yes, the old man dies at salvation, but along with the death, we also shall rise to live forever with the Lord. We've attached to, to Him. For what He's done, we do. Noah and his family were saved because they got in the ark. Jesus is the ark. When we trust Christ as our Savior, we are attached to Him in every way. It's none of you. The penalty of our sin is conquered through His crucifixion. We, it says we are crucified with Him and it is through the power of His resurrection that we will be resurrected one day. Romans 6, 5 says, For if we've been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall also in the likeness of His resurrection. Now verse 6 explains the death of our old life to the extent that we should not serve it. Unregenerated man serves what he believes is alive, though it is dead and powerless. The unregenerate, though they're breathing and moving and doing things, those are really the truly the walking dead. <laughs> they're on their way down. It says, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. We know better. The unsafe doesn't know any better. I don't get that, you know, blown out of the water when some unregenerated man is cussing and does this, and that's what they do. Some, not as much as others, but that's the way it goes. But we are saved 
that we are saved, we have a testimony having died to our old life, freed from the power and bondage of sin. See, that the unsaved are bound to it and the power of it. Verse 7 and 8 says, For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Once dead to the lie of our old life, we obtain a new liberty that was not available to us before. To live in the truth of God's word. Once dead, now living. Now turn to John chapter 8 in your Bible. We're going to hear some words straight from Jesus here. In John chapter 8. And you need to pick up on this. It kind of ties in what's being said in Romans chapter 6. John chapter 8, verse, beginning in verse 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him. Now once you get this picture because there's, he's talking to this group of Jews, but he particularly, to me, appears like he looks at the ones that believed in him. And he says, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. When you get saved, the word of God is opened up, the spirit of God gives it, you'll know the truth. It'll be revealed to you by God himself, by the spirit of God. And then it says, they answered him. Now I believe this is the larger group there. We be Abraham's seed. And we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free. Jesus answered them, verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. What is he saying there? In yourselves, you're sinners. You can't do nothing but sin, but those who are in Christ, who have trusted Christ, he abides forever. You've attached yourself to the eternal. He says, if the Son, therefore, shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. He says, I know that ye are Abraham's seed, but ye seek to kill me, because my word hath no place in you. Now let's go back to Romans chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. It says, Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no dominion over him. Now we're attached to him, right? For in that he died, he died once unto sin, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. How do you know? Here's another indication of how you know you're saved. You really can only find life in Christ. That's the only place to find it as a saved person. Most miserable people in the world are not the unsaved. It's the saved who are trying to live a life outside of Christ, to live in the old man. Paul then tells us the logical thing. Here he comes. Okay. I said all this. I'm going to give you the logic and what to do here. 
is to not to let your body be ruled by sin. You have the power. You have the understanding. You have the word of God to abstain from following your lusts. To not let your body be used for unrighteous behavior. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members, in verse 13, as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. And Paul then says this, for sin shall not have dominion over you. Dominion is like a kingdom that rules over you. When you got saved, <laughs> you're not ruled over by it. You have the freedom to serve God. Not the freedom to sin. That's what he's saying. That's not what this is about. You know, it's crazy, but people, you know, they'll talk about eternal security. Well, that means you can sin and do anything you want. You can still be saved. Nah, that's... Paul said, God forbid, that's stupid. You don't do that. Those who pretend to be saved do that. They're just not saved. Salvation's not of us and our abilities, folks. I'm learning more and more. It's, it's all Him. There's not much use in me except to obey Him. Other than that, I mess up. He says, you are not under the law, but under grace. Being saved, we have power over the bondage of sin. Now, Paul comes now in with another rhetorical question. He's really good at this, and he says, God forbid, a lot in Romans. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? Hey, we got the freedom to do what we want to do now. He's, what's he say? God forbid. Again, Paul gives a short answer, God forbid, but he also, as in previous manner, he gives the long of the answer by asking a question, a question that ties your state of salvation to that of who you serve. You'll know you're saved by who you serve. You see, the unbeliever is bound to obey sin, living in the nature of sin. The direction is down. But those whose God's word have been who obey God's word have been freed from sin to serve God. Salvation is not of your service, but your service shows if you are saved. We saw the same statement we just talked about it when Jesus addressed the Jews in chapter 8 of the Gospel of John. Know ye not to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death, down, or of obedience unto righteousness, life. Paul makes it clear to everyone that is saved. We are, all had a past life of belief before we believed with our heart evidenced by an obedience to his word. And that when we did this, we were freed from sin because of um, when we did this, we were freed from sin uh, because of unbelief. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin. You were. We all start there. Everyone's a sinner to start. But ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. I 
It haunts me to this day when I was uh, late teens, early 20s. Uh, Patty's cousin, we, uh, we moved to Maryland, and uh, it was Tom and his wife, Becky, and Becky went to a church, but I've grown to understand it was religious. It was religion. Something came up about what the Word of God said, and she said this. I don't believe that part. <laughs> she, she is dead in her sin. She is God. She has not made Jesus her God. Nice lady, did good things, lost on her way down to the devil's hell because she's put her trust in a religion and in herself. Now Paul alludes to something he's going to give more detail about later. He acknowledges that being made free from sin, that our bodies still have the capacity to sin. We're not going to get rid of that, folks. It has an infirmity, a sickness that will carry us through this mortal life, the capacity to sin. And by the way, we are very conditioned and trained our bodies to do so through life. He urges us to stop yielding to the flesh, but yield our members to righteousness and holiness. He says, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as we have yielded your member as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now. Yield your members, servants, to righteousness and holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. You know what he's saying there? When you weren't saved, the power of God had nothing on you. You live the way you want to live. You were free from the righteousness of God. Hey, God didn't control your life. You did. Then Paul reasons, what good is there in serving sin anymore? But there is fruit to holiness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? What good was it back then? It was nothing. It was going down, down, down. For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. The simple conclusion for the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Down only goes down. Up only goes up. When you've trusted Christ as your Savior there's no good reason in your mind you know better that sin is, does no good for you, that we're to turn ourselves, to give our bodies over to righteousness to serve the living God. But we get confused a little bit about up and down sometimes, I think, and we want to justify things, and we want to say this is okay, and that's okay. It's not. It's either going down or it's going up.
That's bright. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Pianists come into play. We were on our way down. We could not stop it. There was nothing we could do. The grace of God came. Jesus gave his life on a cross and died for us to make a way that we might forever now go up. To be resurrected in the last day, to have a home in heaven, to be sanctified, to grow up, to grow in, to grow outward. What a thing it was. It's all of Christ. We can't even live this Christian life without Him living it in us. That's why He gave us the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. We'll be raised, the Bible says, by His Spirit. Those who have His Spirit will be raised again one day. Why should we live anymore in sin? What a question. Should be a simple answer. But we must get confused because we go back down there and try to find life in something that's dead. Amen. I hope the Lord spoke to you and Got some more understanding out of the book of Romans, particularly chapter 6, and uh, uh, just read through it, read it, read it again, and read other Paul's writings, they, they all go together, it's the same Paul, through many of the books of the New Testament. Let's pray, Father, thank you for your word, thank you for just uh, making clear and straightening us out in some areas of life that we need to know that we might live the Christian life that you have for us. And one day, you'll raise us up again in the last day. Well, thank you for it all. Thank you for Christian friends and the families here. Lord God, pray you bless their day. In Jesus' name.